Let's pray together. Let the first thought with each other be love, Father. Let our light shine. Go on making us conscious of your unbreakable love. Lord, minister to these truths to us. And now, Lord, as we turn to try to understand how to avail ourselves of the ministry of God in the sky, help us to understand. Come and take these minutes we have together and make them maximally useful for the ongoing healing and hope and happiness and humility of our own individual lives and families and ministries and our church. I ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, this morning's message was based on Psalm 19, and its main point was that the heavens are telling the glory of God, and that the glory of God is a very happy thing, and that this is a ministry that God doesn't want you to miss out on. He doesn't want you to go through your days neglecting the ministry of the skies. God does not speak in vain. It's a very sad thing when you're in a room with God and he's pouring out speech to you and you're watching the television. Isn't that a sad thing? Or if you're out of doors and he is pouring forth speech to you from the sky and you never listen, you never look up. That's a very sad thing because you don't get the benefit of the ministry. God ministers through his word always. And Psalm 19 very plainly says that day to day pours forth God's speech through the sun and the moon and the stars and the clouds and the blue expanse and the thunder and the lightning. And I think tonight we can just expand it to everything that he has made. And so I want to take these four words and and uh, just touch on three of them briefly, perhaps, and then dwell on one of them more at length, humility and hope and healing and happiness. I said that when God ministers through the sky, he brings those four things into our lives. He advances those four things. We are less hopeful. We are less healed. We are less happy. We are less humble if we do not pay attention to the sky, I believe. So let me take these and uh, point you at least in a direction for your reflection and then perhaps dwell more at length on one of them. First, we'll start with humility. And I suppose if we just took a little survey here and I ask you which psalm connects nature and humility, many of you would remember the psalm, wouldn't you? Namely, Psalm 8. You remember how it goes and how it connects. When I look at the heavens, I'm reading verse 3. When I look at the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast established, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou dost care for him? So this is a very godly and fitting response. When I look at the heavens and everything that you have made, I feel very small. That's an appropriate response. I am humbled. And I was thinking about 
the space age now that we live in and the photographs now that we have to look at. And the photographs, of course, that make me feel the smallest are the photographs of Earth from the moon or from other places. And you look down and you say, hmm, I suppose the IDS tower isn't that great after all. I don't see it. In fact, I can't even make out America. Oh, yes, there's Baja, California. Hmm. Guess John Piper is just nowhere to be seen. And that's a very good thing to happen. It's a very good thing. It's not the only thing that should happen, but it's a good thing. It keeps us in proper perspective. Of course, God means for us to keep on dwelling long enough on nature to hear the rest of the message. Matthew 10, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. Are not the very hairs of your head numbered? Yes, I tell you, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, he means for us to hear that message second. I'm totally persuaded that message is a second message, not a first message. Because you will not be amazed at grace until you feel insignificant, properly insignificant. Once you realize how utterly infinitesimal you are in this universe of billions of galaxies, then when you hear the Lord who made those galaxies say, I know that you have about 135,000 hairs, and John Piper 132,000 and less every day. I know them, I keep count. And I know your value to me, and I cherish you in Jesus Christ, my son. That comes from nature, too. But it's a humbling thing just to look up. If you want to get that out of Psalm 19, the phrase that communicated it to me was the phrase, In them, that is, in the skies, he has set a tent for the sun. A tent. This blue canopy that goes around our globe is to God like a pup tent. So he pitches a tent and says to the sun, now you cruise around this globe and I'll pitch a tent for you to cruise in. And then I feel the magnitude of this God and then I am humbled. And you can think of many other passages. And I just want you to let through the days and through the weeks as you look up. Let it say, God is big and I am small, and then let it say, uh, let the weak say, I'm strong. Let the poor say, I'm rich. That's a beautiful verse. That's a beautiful chorus. Very biblical. Of course, you can never sing it if you don't think you're weak and if you don't think you're poor. Hope. First, humility, and then hope. I thought of hope because of the crisis in the Mideast and the tendency to feel fretful about what the world's coming to. And perhaps some of you have relatives who are caught or some relatives who are sent. And then I let my mind run over the way the biblical people who were caught established their hearts in God. Let me just point to a few texts. Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. 
from whence does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who, finish it, made heaven and earth. Now, why does he say that? I think he says that because it's an awesome thing to have the God who made this for your help. That's what you should see when you look up. You look up and you say, this is big. This is about a billion, billion times bigger than the Middle East. There's more power in this sun, 93 million miles away, than in all the atom bombs on this earth. And God made this, and it's one of the littler things that he made. And this God is my help. Then I just got out my concordance and looked to see how many times biblical writers prayed like that. And there were a lot of them. Many times biblical prayers begin that way. I wonder if you could. Can you think of one in Acts? What prayer in Acts begins by crediting God as the creator? What chapter is it found in? Some of you know. Come on. It's found in chapter Good night. You're just scared to try, aren't you? Four. Yes, thank you. <laughs> it's found in Acts 4. And Peter and John have just been released. The situation is very explosive and dangerous in Jerusalem. It's, it's much more explosive there than in the Middle East because death is right on the horizon. It will happen to James very soon. And... Uh, these people have already been arrested and it is a fragile situation and they get together in chapter four to pray and they begin their prayer in verse 24. And it begins like this. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, sovereign Lord, who didst make the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And then they continue with their requests after they acknowledge that the nations rage and the kingdoms make a big noise. But he reigns. That's the way they establish themselves in hope. They remind themselves they are raging against us. But our help is the God who made them and made everything over them. And there are many other psalms which I'll pass over, but perhaps just refer to Hezekiah. Remember him? He was in Jerusalem. He got surrounded by 185,000 Assyrians. Sennacherib was mocking the living God. And Hezekiah goes to the Lord and he cries out, Oh God, who made the heavens and the earth. Again and again and again in Scripture. The point is, we have learned that the heavens and the earth are great. The God who made them is even greater. Sennacherib and all his forces, Hussein and all his forces, are very tiny and small compared to God in his power. And therefore, we will take hope from the fact that he is our help. Third, healing. Perhaps dwell a little longer on this one. I have two kinds of healing in mind. I have, I have emotional healing from depression and I have healing from lust in mind. Here, I want to talk briefly about how nature is meant by God to minister to people oppressed in their emotions and to people in the grip of bondage to sexual lust. First, depression. I want to take a wise man here. And quote him. Some of you have read this. I think I've read part of it before. This is Spurgeon. 
in an essay written for pastors called The Minister's Fainting Fits, <laughs> which is an old-fashioned word for depression and discouragement. And his description is awesome. I, I really believe everybody ought to read this essay, The Minister's Fainting Fits, in the book Lectures to My Students. I wonder, Esther, if we have this in our library. If we don't, we ought to have Lectures to My Students by Charles Spurgeon. They're available still, even though he's 100 years old. And he has the long description of causes for depression and discouragement in the ministry and why we enter black times. Uh, let me read that just because it's so, so wholesome, so healthy to realize. Here's a man who had his own bouts. Moreover, most of us in some way or other are unsound physically. He's giving reasons for depression here. Here and there we meet with an old man who would not remember that ever he was laid aside for a day. But the great mass of us labor under some form or other of infirmity, either in body or mind. Certain bodily maladies, especially those connected with the digestive organs, the liver and the spleen, are the fruitful fountains of despondency. And let a man strive as he may against their influence. There will be hours and circumstances in which they will for a while overcome him. As to mental maladies, is any man altogether sane? Are we not all a little off balance? It's very healthy to realize that nobody's totally normal. Now, here is one element in the healing process. And I don't ascribe to it any more power than it ought to have. Just don't neglect it in the array of means the Lord gives for us to fight the fight of faith. While nature lies outside his window, calling him to health and beckoning him to joy, he who forgets the humming of the bees among the heather, the cooing of the wood pigeons in the forest, the song of birds in the woods, the rippling of rills among the rushes, and the sighing of the wind among the pines, needs not wonder if his heart forgets to sing and his soul grows weary. A day's breathing of fresh air upon the hills, or a few hours ramble in the beech woods, umbrages calm, would sweep the cobwebs out of the brain of scores of our toiling ministers who are now but half alive. A mouthful of sea air or a stiff walk in the wind's face would not give grace to the soul, but it would yield oxygen to the body, which is the next best thing. I think I would take exception with the negation in that sentence. Because I believe in common grace and I believe in its healing power. I believe a stiff wind in the face ministers grace to the soul. He didn't mean that, though. He was meaning saving grace. Heaviest the heart is in heavy air. Every wind that rises blows away despair. The ferns and the rabbits, the, the streams and the trouts, the fir trees and the squirrels, the primroses and violets, the farmyard, the new mown hay, the fragrant hops. These are the best medicine for hypochondriacs, the surest tonics for the declining, the, the best refreshment for the weary, for lack of opportunity or inclination. These great remedies, notice what he calls them. Great remedies are neglected and the student becomes self-immolated victim. There is a healing in nature. Chesterton, 
uh, said something very much like that. I wish I could get all of you to read this little book. It's only 160 pages. Chesterton, he's a Catholic journalist from a, two generations ago, wrote a book called Orthodoxy. It changed my life when I read it as a senior in college. And he says something very similar to uh, Spurgeon on page 20. Let me see if I can find it here. He says, I mean that if you or I were dealing with a mind that was growing morbid, we should be chiefly concerned not so much to give it arguments as to give it air. To convince it that there was something cleaner and cooler outside the suffocation of a single argument. Air, not just argument, is needed. David Brainerd, I did a talk on David Brainerd at our pastor's conference last January, and my heart broke for David Brainerd. Remember him, the missionary to the Indians from 100 years to 200 years ago. David Brainerd died when he was 29 of, uh, of uh, leukemia. I believe that's what it was. He was coughing up blood the six years of his ministry. I read every word of David Brainerd's journal preparing for that. And you know what? David Brainerd worked in the woods all the time. He ministered to Indians. He lived in huts and he moved through the woods. He rode on horseback everywhere. You cannot find one word of exaltation in nature in the journals of David Brainerd. And that's one of the reasons he was a very morbid young man. Jonathan Edwards, his almost father-in-law, on the other hand, lived in the same time, in the same place, and Edwards' sermons are filled with imagery from the woods where he lived around Northampton. Edwards lived off of the God who speaks in the skies as well as the God who speaks in the scripture. And I remember reading an essay by Clyde Kilby. I'm going to quote extensively here in a few minutes. Professor of English at Wheaton, one of my teachers, about David Brainerd, and he, he, with tears as it were in his eyes, said, Oh, that David Brainerd could have just opened his eyes in the woods where he was to see what Jonathan Edwards saw when he looked up and when he looked out and would have allowed God to minister to his morbid, oppressed spirit day in and day out. It could be that he availed himself of that and just didn't put it down in his journals. I don't know, but I never, never saw it. We are changed when we behold the glory of the Lord and we need to avail ourselves. I think that when we get trapped in a kind of depression, uh, it's not so much that argument or even Bible verses have the kind of effect we'd like them to. But sometimes a change of atmosphere where a new vision of reality and of possibility is granted to the soul. And so often, I believe, God means for the, the, the sky to minister that newness. Now, I'm going to come back to that when I talk about happiness here. But uh, let me just say a word about lust, healing from lust. And I'll be very brief here. I'd love to develop this further, and I might. But I, I'm more inclined to develop it further among the men because I don't know much about women's struggles here. And I do know quite a bit about men. Um, do you know why there are no windows on adult bookstores? Or do you know why there are no windows on certain kinds of nightclubs in this city? 
And I suppose your answer would be, well, because they don't want people looking in and getting a free sight. That's not the only reason. You know why? Because they don't want people looking out at the sky. You know why? The sky is the enemy of lust. Now, I just ask you, I just ask you, you think back on your struggles. The sky is a great power against lust. Pure, lovely, wholesome, beautiful, powerful, large-hearted things cannot abide the soul of a sexual fantasy at the same time. I remember as I struggled with these things in my teenage years and in my college years, I knew how I could fight most effectively in those days. And I've developed other strategies over the years that have proved very effective. And one way of fighting was simply to get out of the dark places, get out of the lonely rooms, get out of the boxed in places, get out of the places where it's just small, me and my mind and my imagination and what I can do with it, and get out where I am just surrounded by color and beauty and bigness and loveliness. And I know that when I used to sit in my front yard at 122 Bradley Boulevard with a notepad in my hand and a pen and and trying to write a poem, at that moment, my heart and my body were light years away from the sexual fantasizing that I was tempted by again and again in the late night, quiet, secluded, in-house moments. There's something about bigness, something about beauty that helps battle against the puny, small, cruddy, Use of the mind to fantasize about sexual things and then turn it around. It works this way, too. We know from experience that if we give way to sexual fantasies and yield to lust and dwelling on unwholesome things, our capacities for seeing the sky are cut in half. And then cut in half again, and then cut in half again, until you're just a little worm on the ground and your language and your mind is nothing but smut. It can happen to anybody. And so I just commend to you, don't let that happen. Battle lust among all the other weapons that you're given in the scriptures, battle it with the upward glance at the magnificent blue and the thunder and the lightning and the sunrises and the sunsets and the glory of God and say to yourself, if I give way in this hour to that kind of thinking, I won't enjoy this. I won't have a large heart. I won't have a capacious mind. I won't be a noble person. I'll just be an old gutter person. Preach to yourself like that. And then give yourself over to the ministry of the sky and let it help you free from lust. And now, finally, happiness. And uh, this is a message all to itself. Clyde Kilby is, is dead now with the Lord. And I have here in my hand something very precious to me. He spoke at a 
meeting down at First Covenant Church. I think it was about 1975, and I went to hear him lecture. And he closed his lecture, this professor of English literature at Wheaton, who had probably done more to open my eyes to the world than anybody else. He closed his lecture with 11 points toward mental health. (laughs) And I want to read you maybe eight of them here in closing. Number one, and by mental health, he means a wholesome, happy, complete, able to function person. Number one, at least once every day, I shall look steadily up at the sky and remember that I, a consciousness with a conscience, am on a planet traveling in space with wonderfully mysterious things above and about me. Once a day, he resolves to look up and remember mystery. Mystery is very healing, brothers and sisters. Chesterton said, the madman is not the man who has lost his reason. The madman is the man who has lost everything but his reason. That's good. He said, the poet, which he considers the healthiest of all people, does not try to get the heavens into his head. That's what the madman does. The poet tries to get his head into the heavens. It's the difference between going insane and being healthy. Number two, instead of the accustomed idea of a mindless and endless evolutionary change to which we can neither add or subtract, I shall suppose the universe guided by an intelligence which, as Aristotle said of Greek drama, requires a beginning, a middle, and an end. I think this will save me from the cynicism expressed by Bertrand Russell before his death when he said, there is darkness without, when I die, There will be darkness within. There is no splendor, no vastness anywhere, only triviality for a moment and then nothing. A lot of people have died like that. And Kilby says, I will not die like that. I will believe there is an intelligence, God Almighty, who is running the drama. Number three. I shall not turn my life into a thin, straight line which prefers abstraction to reality. I shall know what I am doing when I abstract, which, of course, I shall often have to do. Now, this is so important for health, and I have to explain it because I'm sure that didn't communicate completely all that it should. Do you know what it means to abstract? Abstracting is talking about trees instead of the tree in which Noel and I carved carved our initials in 1968, about six feet up, and went back ten years later and found them all grown over. That's now gone and is full of memories. The latter was concrete, the former was abstract. Abstract is unhealthy, Concrete is healthy. You mark it down. Why, when I preach on Sunday morning and I come to a point in the service that says, you know, there was a morning on study leave, immediately there's silence in the congregation. Now, I can be talking about all kinds of theological abstractions, exposing the text, and as soon as I say, you know, there was a morning, boom. You know why? 
Because you're made for concreteness. You are made not for me to talk about the noise in the trees at night in Barnesville, but that one little tree fog who lived in the black pole that held the barbed wire fence and in the morning sat on top and allowed Abraham to pet his head. A tree frog of all things. That's concrete and you love it. The kids love it. We're all kids. We love the concrete. Here, here's what I mean. This is C.S. Lewis. You want to be healthy? Read C.S. Lewis. Read the children's books first. Read the space trilogy. Read mere Christianity, miracles, problem of pain. Read C.S. Lewis at all costs. Read C.S. Lewis if you want to be mentally whole. In space and time, there is no such thing as an organism. There are only animals and vegetables. No, there are no mere vegetables, only trees, flowers, turnips, etc. Etc, by the way, is the worst abstraction of all. There are no trees except beeches, elms, oaks, and the rest. There is even no such thing as an elm. There is only this elm in such a year of its age, at such an hour of the day, this lighted, this moving, thus acted on by all the past and all the present and affording such and such experiences to me and my dog and the insect on its trunk and the man a thousand miles away who is remembering it. A real elm, in fact, can be uttered only by a poem. That's what Kilby was trying to say. We Americans have fallen into what Darwin experienced at the end of his life. Up to the age of 30 or beyond it, poetry of many kinds gave me great pleasure. Even as a schoolboy, I took intense delight in Shakespeare. Formerly, pictures gave me considerable delight in, in music. But now, for many years, I cannot endure to read a line of poetry. I have tried to read Shakespeare and found it so intolerably dull that it nauseated me. I have also almost lost any taste for pictures or music. I retain some taste for fine scenery, but it does not cause me the exquisite delight which, I for, which it formerly did. My mind seems... Now note this. This is what's happening to all Americans if they're not fighting against it. All modern, rational, technological people, this is happening to us if we're not fighting against it. My mind seems to have become a kind of machine for the grinding out of laws, out of large collections of facts, but why this should have caused the tastes to fail, I cannot conceive. The loss of these tastes is a loss of happiness and may possibly be injurious to the intellect and more probably to the moral character by enfeebling the emotional part of our nature. That's the way Darwin ended, ended his life. His mind had become a large machine of intelligence, grinding out general laws from facts and not able to get any enjoyment from the specific anymore, from the frog or the poem about the toad or the tree or the insect on the tree. I shall not demean my own uniqueness by envy of others. I shall stop boring into myself to discover what psychological category I am in. Mostly, I shall simply forget about myself and do my work. Oh, what a good word to us. We're in a psychological age. 
And there is so much helpful in it and so much danger in it. We are much too self-conscious. I remember reading in uh, George MacDonald about being depressed and feeling nothing. And he said, when that happens, heed not thy feelings, do thy work. If you must, sweep your room. In other words, get out beyond yourself. We'll never figure ourselves out. Believe me, you will never understand yourself in this life. You won't understand your spouse in this life. You won't understand your colleagues in this life. Everybody is a mystery of perplexity that baffles, enrages, frustrates, especially ourselves. You will never figure it out. And if you spend your whole life trying to, you will go insane. Look at the sky and forget it. Just forget about you. It's just good advice every now and then to say, sweep your room and iron your shirt and put things away and take a walk and look for a frog. And when you find it, when you find it, try to pet it. And if it hops away, say, my, how frogs hop. <laughs> well, we've got to stop. There are more here. Maybe I'll put some in the star for you this week. But we've got business to do with the Lord. There's so many things. The message is just real simple. Avail yourself of the ministry of the sky, the ministry of nature in all of its concreteness and specificity, and let it minister to you. Let it give hope and let it give healing and let it give happiness and let it give humility.